Hey people, um, this is Sarah Krager, and welcome to the first, or hopefully the first of several installments of what I'm going to call the Do Thinking series. The goal of this series is to sort of cultivate what I'm calling in my head at least, a deliberate practice of critical care problem solving. Um, I started thinking about this when I was trying to get better at solving patients in real time. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about how to get better at that. You know, practicing an instrument, you just practice it X number of hours every day. You do exercises and scales. It's not that hard. I mean, it's hard, but it's straightforwardly hard. But what's harder is how do I practice getting better thinking about patients? And this is when I came across the idea of deliberate practice. The idea is that Practice doesn't always make perfect. That saying that, I don't know, you're like music teacher or coach said, kind of, only kind of. Because it turns out that rote repetition, where you just do the same thing over and over again while you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner tonight, doesn't actually help you that much. And in fact, if you're practicing doing it wrong, it can actually make you worse. So I came across this idea of deliberate practice. There's lots of interesting information on it in books and so forth and so on, but um my three takeaways, at least, are that the three key components are one, maximally focused attention. When you're doing fill-in-the-blank activity, you are laser-focused on that activity. You're not thinking about what you're going to have for dessert after dinner. The second one is a systematic approach. You're not just like, oh, I'll play some notes and kind of see what happens. Um, you actually have a thoughtful, systematic approach, a way of breaking down the activity so that you can practice it in pieces and be thoughtful about the components of each. And then lastly, critical feedback. First, you got to be willing to take criticism and a lot of criticism. And you have to be willing to take it from both yourself. So you're going to think about what you just did, what you messed up and why, and take it from other people. You know, I started doing this thing when I'm driving home from a shift or a string of shifts and reviewing for myself what all did I do wrong? Like, what were all the mistakes that I made? Um, and why did I make them? And what I should do next time about them so I don't make them again? Um, and I think part of the issue is that we often in medicine identify mistakes as when there's a bad outcome. But that's the wrong way to look at it. Because if you do the right thing, but for the wrong reason, that is still a mistake. On the other hand, if you do the wrong thing for the right reason, that's actually not a mistake. And so I think it's all about evaluating, were you approaching the problem correctly? Were you thinking correctly? And that's really where the mistakes happen or don't. So as a key to this, um, chunking of information is so important. Chunking of the skill, how you do it, making it systematic is really important. And so after thinking about it quite a bit, um, I... I'm chunking it as follows. If I am failing to solve a clinical problem, it's for one of two reasons. Either I don't have all the puzzle pieces or I have all the puzzle pieces and for some reason I can't put them together. In this clinical problem, there are two categories of puzzle pieces. Piece number one is the data. All the data that you have about the patient and what you're doing with it. So that's labs and imaging and vital signs and history and physical and every single piece of data that you have. But it's not just that. It's also knowing things like test characteristics, pretest probability, being able to critically appraise the data. 
in the context of the literature. And what's even harder is data mining, where trying to figure out what's actually important, what's a red herring, what should you ignore, what is the key thing that actually reveals the story of this patient amongst all of that data. Because one thing that's hard in critical care is you have so much data. You know, and it's just like the best way to hide something is to take the thing you want and put it in the middle of 5,000 other similar things. Sometimes that's what happens with the key piece of data in critical care because there's so much of it that sometimes that key piece of data is hiding in the million other pieces of data. So figuring out how to think about that data thoughtfully, carefully, and mine it for what you need. The second puzzle piece is knowledge. So you know, this one is straightforward in a way. You have to know stuff. That's easy. The problem is there's lots and lots of it. And in the emergency department, as emergency physicians, we have to know a ridiculous amount of knowledge. We have to know so many different specialties. And um, I think that what's especially hard for critical care is that it's a very deep knowledge base. And it's very intimidating, I think, sometimes for people. And after thinking about this for a bit, what I have decided is that the best way to learn about a complex topic, or really, I guess, any topic, is not to go and sit down and buy a thousand-page book on critical care and read it all the way from the beginning to end. I just don't actually think that's the way to learn anything. In fact, I think probably the most efficient way to learn critical care is actually to go ask an expert to give you a curated batch of knowledge that is curated to what you need it for and the most important things. Because there's this catch-22 where you don't need to know what's important to know until you know it, right? And so the way to get around that is to ask an expert. So the knowledge piece of this series is going to be me attempting to curate the key pieces of knowledge that you need to solve these critical care puzzles. Now, those are the two puzzle pieces, your data piece and your knowledge piece. Problematically, though, just because you have all the pieces of the puzzle in front of you doesn't necessarily mean you can put them together. I think we've all met residents where we've been trying to teach them, you know, and there's the residents who just like don't study and don't know anything. And then there's the residents who are all over it. But I find there's also a lot of residents, a lot of trainees where they know a lot I mean, often they know more than I do, or they certainly remember more than I do. The problem is, even though they have all of the pieces, they just can't figure out how to put it together. And if they can't figure that out, they're never going to be successful. And it turns out that I find for myself, a lot of my errors are not me not having all the pieces. A lot of my errors is failing to put it together in the right way. Now, Learning this, learning these cognitive things, is not nearly as straightforward as sitting down and analyzing data or, like, you know, thinking about knowledge and learning knowledge and facts. It's not straightforward. But I, at the same time, don't think it needs to be completely esoteric anyways. Like, I think that this is something that we can practice doing and get better at, especially if we're systematic about it and explicitly identify specific cognitive strategies to help us put all these pieces together. And so that's the third part of this, is taking your data pieces, taking your knowledge pieces, making sure we have all the correct pieces, and then talk about, do we need to put it together? And so this series, I'm going to take real cases to use them to put together these pieces with some cognitive skills to practice clinical problem solving.
And so each segment is going to use a real clinical case. And um, a real clinical case because clinical cases are messy. You know, that's part of the problem. If all clinical cases were like an oral boards case that like was neatly tied together and everything fit together with a nice bow on top, that would be great. Uh, unfortunately, you may have noticed, as I have noticed, real patients aren't like that, unfortunately. In addition, I'm using cases that you could figure out in the ED with the data that you had at the time. Because I think it's really easy, especially sometimes upstairs in the ICU, when we're like, oh, well, obviously, the da 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 da. You know, but that's because I have a swan and I have seven MRI results and I have a TEE and whatever it is. And so that doesn't really count either because, of course, I can put it together when I have all of those things. The real question is, taking cases that you have all the data to figure out in the emergency department and then figuring out why you can't figure it out or what's going wrong. What is a missing piece of knowledge? What's a problematic piece of data or is it a failure to put it together? So that is the context. And here is the first case that we are going to do. This is a 63-year-old female. She has a history of morbid obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and COPD. She comes into the ED with altered mental status. I get called a couple hours later, and what I am told is that there was this patient who came in, and uh, she was altered, and her CO2 was 81, and so we ended up having to intubate her for CO2 narcosis. So I go down and I see the patient, um, and I take a look at the patient, and I take a look at all her labs. And her ABG, when she came in, was a pH of 7.30, a CO2 of 81, an O2 of 73, and a bicarb of 40. So I look at this patient for a while, and I take a really hard look at that ABG. And the next thing I do is not mess with the vent. The next thing I do is I get a brain CT. And it turns out that on the brain CT, she has a massive, massive hemorrhage. So here's the thing about this case. You actually had all of the data that you needed here to at least cause you to ask the question, should I get a head CT? But at the same time, I totally get where they were coming from here. You know, they were like, this lady came in with altered mental status. Her CO2 was 81. CO2 narcosis, call it a day. And I think the reason that this wasn't obvious is probably because people were missing a knowledge puzzle piece. That was the problem here. It wasn't so much a data piece. You had all the data, and this data is not, you know, that difficult. It's an ABG. You check it. You believe those numbers. That's not hard. But I think people were missing a knowledge piece. And here is the core knowledge piece that I think is helpful for everybody to know in the emergency department. And this is the one talking about what does it look like with somebody who's a chronic CO2 retainer? What's the compensatory response for a chronic respiratory acidosis? So if a patient like this has a chronic respiratory acidosis, as they do probably both because of their COPD and because of their morbid obesity with obesity hypoventilation, they are going to have chronically a compensatory chronic metabolic alkalosis, right? Now, we all know that. And the thing that may not be as obvious is it turns out that the degree of the chronic compensatory metabolic alkalosis is proportionate to the severity of the chronic respiratory acidosis. So the worse the acidosis is chronically, the worse your CO2 is chronically, the higher your bicarb will be chronically. And there's a mathematical relationship between those things. 
And here it is. The relationship is for every four, your bicarb is elevated above normal chronically. For every four, your CO2 is elevated by 10. So let's just take this patient for an example. So um, this patient on the ABG, it shows she has a bicarb of 40. So let's call a normal bicarb 24. So the patient says, okay, how many are you elevated above a normal? Well, the patient, that's 40 minus 24. 40 minus 24 is 16. So the patient's bicarb is chronically elevated 16 above a normal bicarb. Now we said for every four, the CO2 is going to be elevated by 10. So now we're going to say 16 divided by four equals four. Hard math here, I know. Then if the CO2 is elevated by 10 for every four, we're just going to say, okay, well, four times 10 is 40. And we're saying, okay, well, this patient's CO2 then is elevated 40 above a normal CO2 chronically. So 40 plus 40 is 80. Her baseline CO2 is around 80. So when we're looking at that ABG and the pH is 7.30, the CO2 is 81, O273, the bicarb is 40, you're like, wait a minute, her CO2 is always 80. That is normal for her. That cannot be the reason why this patient is altered because she just lives like that. That's normal for her. And so that is a knowledge piece. So that's one way you could have gotten there. Another way you could have gotten there if you didn't know that is to say, well, if your CO2 is 81, that pH seems too close to normal. Could this be chronic? And then you could know enough to look up that conversion. Alternatively, there's a cognitive piece here that I think is useful to think about. And I'm calling it the, just to give it a name, I'm calling it the true, true, unrelated thing. So cognitively, I think it happens a lot in the ED, in the ICU, certainly, that two things happen to be true, but they are not necessarily related at all. It's tempting to relate them because of that whole coincidence, I think not thing, right? We have a patient and two fairly obvious things are co-occurring in that patient, but they're not necessarily connected. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. And so in this case, yes, indeed, it is the trace that the patient is indeed hypercapnic. It is also the case that the patient has altered mental status. These things have nothing to do with each other. So in this particular case, those two things are totally independent. When I start to generally, just on a bigger picture level, think about the sort of true, true, unrelated thing, and especially thinking about it like, well, I don't want to miss things that are actually related, right? Like sometimes it's true, true, unrelated, but often it isn't, you know? Um... But there's two situations in when I really start thinking that true, true, unrelated might be the case. And the first one is like this situation, that one of the true things is the patient's baseline. So, you know, it's not statistically insignificant that these things are, you know, happening at the same time, because one of them is always happening. And it's just the second one that's a new thing. The other time that I think about this situation is when one of the true things is simply sufficiently common that there are reasonable odds that both things could co-occur. So, for example, um, you know, a elderly guy with a chronic Foley comes in to the emergency department and he is altered and he has a dirty UA. Well, he has a chronic indwelling Foley. It is possible that he is altered because of urosepsis. It is also possible that the altered mental status has nothing to do with the urosepsis. And indeed, he has a chronic indwelling foley. He always has a dirty UA. 
And so in that case, one of the true things is just really common so that it may just be co-occurring with the second. So bottom line for this case is that you needed to know the knowledge puzzle piece about the correction for a chronic respiratory acidosis. And you needed to sort of be thinking about the cognitive piece. Now, the thing is that these pieces are synergistic, right? And I think that if you keep actively trying to fit together the knowledge pieces, the data pieces with the cognitive strategies, um, you don't necessarily need to know everything about each one. Because the thing is, just like in a real puzzle, if you can connect enough pieces, even if you can't connect all of them or don't know where they all are, but if you can connect enough of them, then it often will reveal the outline of what's missing to you. And so I think the other advantage, for me at least, of breaking it down into data pieces, knowledge pieces, and cognitive strategies to put the pieces together is that a strength in one area, like if you're great at cognitive strategies but not so strong on the knowledge piece or vice versa, you can kind of compensate for weakness in another area. And I think about it kind of like my internal Swiss cheese model, um, where I try and make sure that not just within the system I'm working with, but in fact, within my own head, I have multiple levels of safety net. And so if I miss the knowledge piece and I'm thinking about the cognitive strategy, maybe that'll help me catch myself and be like, wait, 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 hang on, something doesn't seem right. So in the first episode of hopefully what will be several episodes of the Do Thinking series, Hopefully you liked it and please give feedback so we can make them better in the future. Bye guys.